Hey dads and non-dads, welcome to the Hey Dad Podcast. This is a podcast where three brothers and one guy who wishes he was our brother talk about dad stuff and sometimes non-dad stuff. We did it. We're here. Holidays 2019. They said it couldn't be done. Take that, haters. Um, d- depending on when you're listening to this, at the time of the release, Thanksgiving is right around the corner for us here in the States. And, you know, Thanksgiving is a time for family and friends to get together to share a meal and conversations and tell stories and apparently talk about politics and it always gets a little weird. So we figured, why should the Hey Dad podcast be any different? Um, This is going to be a little bit of a different episode for us. We're going to do things a little differently than our usual format of the four of us sitting around and and having a conversation together. Um, We're actually going to hand the floor over to Kevin, who's going to lead us through kind of a long-form conversation around the topic of guns. Um... This is a conversation that we've been having a lot of amongst the four of us. It's a conversation that um, our country's having, that Twitter's having, um, that if your Facebook timeline is anything like mine, that your friends and family are having probably really badly. Um, So we felt like we wanted to take some space to talk through some of our hearts around this stuff, specifically um, as Kevin shares from the vantage point of being a dad, and even just around some of our conversations about kids going back to school, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's what we're going to do. Before we get into uh, the the bulk of the conversation, and while we're already breaking the fourth wall and whatnot, um, I want to just put something on your radar if you didn't know about it. Um, We started a Patreon, which is basically a place where you can support this podcast financially so that we can get to the point where we aren't paying for it ourselves. (laughs) Um, I think it's also good to uh, I, I also wanted to do this um, this mention before um, you hear this episode, um, maybe even right now, depending on where your politics lie on this conversation, maybe just, just go ahead and give it a pause, go over to Patreon right now, sign up to like, maybe lock yourself into some kind of like five year support model and then press play. I don't know, you know, up to you, but um, we want to invite you into collaborating with us and um, being able to contribute towards us making this podcast. It's something that we really love and has been really meaningful for us. And if you're someone who's listening to this and this is one of your favorite podcasts or you really look forward to every episode or you've shared it with someone because it's been meaningful for you, I guess to put it simply, I would like you to really sincerely consider supporting us regularly so that we can do this more, do this better. Yeah. So, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash hey dad and do that today. Otherwise, let's get to this very different but very important conversation that I hope is meaningful for you. So take it away, Kev. All right, dads and non-dads. Uh, welcome to an episode of the Hey Dad podcast that is going to feel very, very different uh, from our normal silliness with occasional forays into uh, meaningful discussions about dad life. Um, today we are going to have a a harder conversation, a conversation about something that feels very, uh, personal to a lot of us. And that's very emotional for a lot of us. Um, 
we're going to talk about mass shootings. And the reason that I wanted to have this conversation is, uh, I mean, it was prompted by uh, a mass shooting uh, near us a few weeks ago. Um, and then a, just a lot of anxiety that I had personally around, uh, back to school and around dropping my kids off at a place where I don't feel like I can protect them. And I think I was realizing, uh, in conversation with a lot of other parents that they felt this anxiety too. And it's something we don't like to talk about because it's so terrible and it's something we don't like to talk about because having any sort of political conversation is so fraught with argument and emotion and ad hominem personal attacks that uh, it usually just feels like it's something we just should like stuff down and not really think about and try to focus on other things. And, uh, and I very much relate to that because that's, that's my sort of default reaction as well. But this issue is something that I have thought about a lot. And it's something that I've read about a lot and I've talked with a lot of people on a lot of different sides of this issue. Um, and I've been very curious about, and I've been on a sort of journey on this issue and I just have an inclination that a lot of you might be on a similar journey. And maybe you've, maybe you're at a different point in that journey. Maybe right now we're at different destinations to stretch that metaphor a little longer on that journey. Um, but I think what anybody who listens to this podcast has in common is that you love kids and you don't want to see any kids, uh, any more kids get murdered because that's how I feel. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to live in a world where, uh, I'm afraid. I don't want to read any more stories of, kids that are in counseling because they're afraid of going to school. I don't want to hear any more updates from my son about active shooter drills that they do. And he's six years old. I, this isn't it. This sucks. Like this is super broken. And I think that's one thing we all have in common is I think Deep down, we all know that the only thing we can't do is nothing. This is not an acceptable place to end up. I don't think anybody, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, where you fall, look at this situation and go, all right, yeah, that's, that's how it should be. That's a world I'm content to live in. And honestly, if that is you, then, uh, you know, we don't have a lot in common. You probably shouldn't listen to our podcast anymore. Um, but I think that's almost none of us. Every time one of these mass shootings hits the news, I think all of us have the same pit in our stomach. I think all of us have the same visceral reaction to just know this is not the way it's supposed to be. So, so, um, a couple things that I want to say up top here. Um, I would ask you if you've listened to our podcast before, if you're listening to this episode, it's probably because at some point you've developed some level of affection for us, trust in the way we see the world, some camaraderie of some kind, even if it's from far away. 
you like vibe with us and the way we talk about dad stuff and the life we're living. And it probably feels pretty similar to yours. And so I would encourage you, no matter how, no matter where you fall um, on this issue, uh, I would encourage you to hold on to a little bit of that trust for this episode. I'm not, I'm not saying, please agree with every single thing I say. Um, I'm saying, try to approach what I'm saying like you would approach a conversation with a friend who you trust. Cause that's kind of what we are. That's kind of what it is when you listen to a podcast for a long time. I know I feel that way about a lot of the podcasts I listen to. You feel a real kinship and relationship with the people that you get to be a, a little part of their lives. And so please fight the urge to uh, react quickly. Please know that I'm not perfect, that I don't know everything. Um, but I have spent a lot of time thinking and reading and researching and praying and um, really like searching for what's right here. So if you've ever thought that maybe I had a good idea before, or maybe the Hey Dad podcast had something you could laugh about or learn from or be interested in before, um, I don't know why this episode should be any different. Um, the other caveat that I'm going to say up top here is I'm not going to talk a ton about mental health in this episode. Um, but I think, again, another thing we can all agree on is how important mental health is, um, how uh, devastating mental health issues can be. I think we all agree that um, destigmatizing mental health is something that's so important. And I think it's something that's happening very rapidly. There's some really encouraging things that have been happening uh, just in public spaces as uh, prominent people have been willing to share their own issues with mental health. And I think in general, the uh, acceptance that they've been shown by the wider community is, is a good sign for us. I think privately, anecdotally, I have so many more friends that are willing to talk about counseling or willing to talk about medicine or whatever other issues that folks are dealing with. I think we're on a good path here. But I also think that um, blaming mass shootings on mental health is, uh, is inadequate and uh, is not statistically supported. Um, there's almost zero correlation when you look at other countries between the prevalence of mental health issues and uh, mass shooting or mass murder. Um, it's something that, that really only happens here. And so uh, I, I, as much as I cared very deeply about mental health, it's very personal for me, for a lot of people in my life. Um, you're not going to hear me talk about that a lot, but that's not because I don't think it's very important. It's just because I think it has uh, less to do with this epidemic um, than sometimes uh, some people pretend that it does. So, so let's go right at this problem and talk about it. Um, America has about six times as many firearm homicides as Canada, has about 16 times as much as Germany, has around 20 times as much as Australia. Pick a developed country, and we have several multiples higher of firearm homicides in our country. People die from guns more here than in any other developed country in the world by a mile. That's a fact. So let's start with that. Here's another stat. America has more guns than people. We have uh, approximately 120.5 guns for every 100 residents. Um, 
that is more than twice as much as the second highest number in the world, which is Yemen. And more than three times as much as both Serbia and Montenegro. We have, again, if you look at like a bar graph, it's the whole world on a slowly descending uh, slope and then a little bump for Yemen and then more than 2x that, the United States. Um, Sandy Hook in, in 2012 uh, is one of the most terrible things I think that's <laughs> ever happened in this country. Uh, one of the most terrible things that's probably ever happened anywhere. That was in 2012. Uh, as of this recording, that was a little less than seven years ago. Since then, there have been more than 2,000 mass shootings. And that's the definition of a mass shooting is when four or more people get shot or get shot at. Uh, and that is crazy. Um, one other thing that's worth mentioning here uh, that we'll talk about a little bit more later is even in that broad definition of, of uh, mass shootings, uh, that's still less than 2% of America's firearm deaths. So we talk about mass shootings a lot. And the, because they're big and scary, but we'll talk about this a little bit more later. The number one way that guns kill is suicide. All right, next one. On average, there is around one mass shooting every day in America. Uh, and again, that's four plus victims. Okay. So I could list more stats there. Um, they're all extremely depressing. Um, and they all sort of validate, I think, a feeling that we all have which is there are too many mass shootings. <laughs> there are too many people that die from guns. And no matter how you feel about the issue, like nobody feels like that's a good thing. So I'm going to talk specifically about mass shootings for a while. The, here's how I would sort of break down possible solutions to the problem. There's three key elements here. Um, on one side, we have victims. On the other side, the far other side, we have bad guys with guns. And in the middle, we have a venue. Those are kind of the three elements of a mass shooting. And uh, the, the three sort of lanes that possible solutions usually come in are sort of related to those three elements. So if you're talking about gun victims, one solution is what if the good guys had guns too? Um. What if we could protect the good guys better with guns? Basically level the playing field. Then there's the middle section of this little diagram, which is the venue. Um, and the solution there is a, it's a term called hardening. It's basically how do we make those venues more safe? And then on the other side, we've got bad guys with guns. How do we have less bad guys? How do we have less guns? Those are sort of the lanes. So how do we empower the victims protect and empower the victims. Usually that means more guns on that side of the equation. How do we make it harder to get into or execute a mass shooting inside of a venue? Or how do we make sure that there are less bad guys with guns? So I want to break down each one of those three lanes and I'm going to do my absolute best here to avoid um, straw man arguments. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, um, you see it all the time if you're on the internet uh, or on cable news uh, straw man arguments are when you basically create a flawed, fake version of your opponent's argument and then tear that apart. Um, and uh, I don't really think that helps anyone. 
I think maybe it helps you score internet points from people that agree with you, but it doesn't ever actually help anyone critically think through an issue. The opposite of straw man is called steel man. And that's when you try your best to make your opponent's best argument and then address that argument as a way of trying to get to the truth. So I'm going to do my best to do that. I'm sure I will fall short. I'm sure there are people who disagree with me who uh, could make that argument, the argument I disagree with better than I could, but I'm just telling you, I'm going to do my best here. So let's talk about uh, arming the good guys. Um, I'm going to talk about this specifically in the context of a school. So there are um, a lot of folks right now pushing uh, for more guns in and around schools and that they put those guns in the hands of the good guys. Um, you've heard the phrase like the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And um, there's a couple different uh, sort of routes that that can take. One is more armed security at schools. Um, and the other is um, actually arming teachers. And so I want to talk about both of those. Um, as far as armed security, um, th to be clear, this isn't something I, th I think is like stupid or wrong on its face. Um, I do think the idea of uh, super well-trained police officers um, in places where they can uh, be the most helpful, serve and protect the best is a good idea. Um, but I do think it's an extremely inadequate response. Um, there are countless examples where there is an armed and trained security professional on site who either was unable or unwilling in that moment to confront this very literal existential threat. Um, most notably in Parkland, I don't know if you've, how closely you followed um, the shooting in Parkland, but there was a uh, sheriff on site with a gun who got scared. I mean, but I'm, I'm not him, so I'm, I guess I can't uh, perfectly get inside of his brain. But it very much looks like he's a, a human being who in that moment got scared and failed his duty. And I'm not going to be the one to cast judgment right now because I've never been in a place where I was holding a gun and someone was pointing a gun at me and it was my job to take them out. Um, the only point I'm making in this moment is that that didn't prevent that mass shooting. And there are countless other examples, um, where there was a good guy with a gun, uh, who was unable or unwilling to solve the problem. If you talk about arming teachers, um, if I'm being very honest, uh, this is an argument that I have trouble taking very seriously. Um, it feels almost laughable to me. And so maybe that's going to uh, color your opinion of my judgment on this issue. But I would, I would challenge you to think about all of the teachers in your life. I, I know a lot of teachers. I know a lot of people that work in schools. Multiple people in my family currently work at schools or have worked at schools. And I know that when they went to school, um, it wasn't in the hopes that they would have to be wielding a firearm protecting 25 six-year-olds. I also know that that's not, not only is that not a desire they have, it's also not a skill or capacity they have. And most importantly, it's not a responsibility that they want to assume. Obviously, there will be some teachers that disagree with this because there are a lot of teachers. And so you could probably find a teacher with just about any opinion on planet Earth just because there are a lot of them. 
you've probably heard me allude to things like this um, on the podcast before, but I think I'm about as pro teacher as a person can be. I think they are wildly underpaid and I think they need way more resources. And I think there's so much more that we can do um, to support them and help them. But I do not think that part of what we should be doing is trusting all of them with firearms and, and placing upon their shoulders the responsibility to protect kids. That is not what a teacher is. Lastly, and, and I hope no teachers listening to this take this the wrong way, but let's just be really honest. Given that there are so many teachers, that means we have teachers that are also dealing with mental illness. We have teachers that have anger issues. We have teachers that have all sorts of trouble um, managing either their own emotional or mental health or managing their classroom or whatever. That's just a, a factor of numbers. When there are so many teachers and so many kids, there's going to be a lot of amazing teachers and then there's going to be some that have their own personal issues just like any other subsection of, of society. And to be honest, I don't think it's a very good idea to put a gun in a classroom in a safe with a combination that only the teacher knows. I think that's a recipe for something terrible to happen. To be honest, this feels to me like a solution that you only arrive at when you've decided that people will always be bad. People will always have guns. There's nothing we can do about the other side of this equation. So I guess we could just try this. It, 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 to me, it betrays a lack of imagination and the fact that you've, you've conceded such a big part of the argument already that you're left with very limited options to solve this problem. So in a nutshell, that's where I land on that. It's hard for me to imagine, given the correlation that we see between the proliferation of guns and the proliferation of bad behavior, that more guns will solve the problem. It's also, as I alluded to at the end there, I think an unfair binary statement to make to divide the world into good guys and bad guys and just say, let's just give more good guys guns. Okay, let's take a little break. This is a lot. This is a big conversation. It's heavy. It's definitely a lot to process. So just want to take a quick break, check in, see how we're doing. And uh, okay, let's head back in. Okay, so that's the what if, what if we were doing a better job protecting potential victims with guns argument. Now let's talk about the middle argument. Um, this is a term called hardening. Uh, and it's basically, what if we could make schools physically safer? And this is everything from uh, increased fencing and metal detectors and entrance and exit protocols to bulletproof backpacks and bulletproof windows and um, doors that only open and close in certain ways and the ability to put a school on lockdown in the right way. And there's a lot of time and effort and thought that's gone into, uh, gone into this, um, running through scenarios where there is someone on campus with a gun. What are all the things we could do institutionally, architecturally, um, to harden the venue? And again, like I, I totally see on the surface why, this would make sense. You know, it's, it's, and on the surface, it's like, well, we do this at airports and that seems to work pretty well. There's not a ton of people with guns on airplanes. So what if we did it that way? And, you know, and it, again, I, I also think this is motivated by people with that, that just want to keep their kids safe. Um, 
but here, here are my issues with it. Uh, and there are a few of them. Ultimately, I really don't like the message it sends to my kid and to culture at large that I have to send my kid to school essentially in a prison. Um, that the, the message, I don't, I don't think that in the, the moment of like walking through those metal detectors and big fences and lots of training protocols and drills that you have to run. I don't think that reinforces a message of safety. I think that reinforces a message of fear. It's a constant reminder that you are in danger and we have put all of these protocols in place to mitigate that danger as much as we can. That's, that's one issue I have with it. But ultimately, the real issue I have with it is much more practical. Um, and it's where I think this idea falls apart so quickly. Here's why. The argument is basically that we're hardening schools because big gatherings of people will always be targets for bad people with guns. So if we harden the school, we'll make it harder for a bad person with a gun to execute a mass shooting. But we've seen mass shootings in America at workplaces and at concerts and at churches and at government buildings and at parks and at rec baseball games and at shopping malls and at theaters and at restaurants. So why would we, if we think the solution to this problem is hardening schools, why would we stop at schools? Is it because only kids' lives are, are important now? Like, look, I'm a parent. I, I get it. Like, I would die for my kid in a heartbeat. So, yeah, if push comes to shove, I would say my kids' are, lives are more important to me than mine. But as a culture, are we saying the only lives that are worth protecting are kids' lives? Like, I don't think anyone's actually saying that. But implicitly, if we're only hardening schools, that is what we're saying. So if your problem is that big gatherings of people will always be targets for bad people with guns and your solution is hardening that venue, there is no reason why you shouldn't harden every venue that might house more than a few people. So we're going to harden every school, every workplace, every venue, every restaurant, every theater, every shopping mall, every public park. I mean, come on, of course, of course that doesn't make sense. Are we going to create literally millions of fortresses all across the country? Is that the world that anybody wants to live in? I think the term police state gets thrown around a little too much, but that is a police state. And, and even just practically, is, how in the world would that be a good use of money? I can't even begin to fathom or calculate how much money that would cost. And again, this feels to me like a solution that you only arrive at when you've decided that people will always be bad, people will always have guns, and there's nothing we can do about that. There's no way we could have less guns. So I guess we could try this. It's, it's when you've already conceded a part of the argument that I'm not ready to concede yet. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the other side of the equation, which is what if people with bad intentions didn't have as many guns, didn't have as easy access to guns? What if we made the actual shooting part of a mass shooting harder and rarer? So I want to talk about a few more stats. Um, there is a inarguably strong correlation uh, between gun ownership and gun deaths. 
states with more guns have more guns, gun deaths. Um, and that, that also extends to countries. If you map all the countries and their gun ownership with gun ownership on the x-axis and gun deaths per 100,000 people on the y-axis, you see an extremely strong correlation between the, the countries that have the most guns and the countries that have the most deaths, gun deaths. Um, this one is really, really interesting to me. And that's that America is an outlier uh, when it comes to gun deaths. We've already talked about that. There's so many more people that die from guns in America than anywhere else, but not in overall crime. And I think what that implies, and not even in, sorry, not even in violent crime, um, I think what's really, really interesting is that we just have more lethal violence, which to me makes all the sense in the world. There are good people everywhere. There are bad people everywhere. People get into arguments everywhere. People get into fights everywhere. People have moments where they feel so angry they can't control themselves everywhere. But it's only in America where more people have access to more guns. So in that moment of anger, in that moment of I can't control myself, in many places in the world, there's more of a limit on the damage that can be done in that moment than there is here. Um, here's another stat. States with tighter gun control laws have fewer gun-related deaths. Again, it's so obvious on its face, but it's true. Uh, here's something that I hope is sobering for so many of us. Um, most gun-related deaths are actually suicides. Almost 2x suicide to homicide. And the states with the most guns report the most suicides. And that's because... Guns are an extremely effective way to kill yourself. There was a study done in Indiana in the 90s that showed that uh, cutting, people that tried to kill themselves via cutting, uh, succeeded about 5% of the time. Via poison, about 7.5% of the time. And via firearm, about 96.5% of the time. And this is, this is so crucial because studies also show that most people, after a failed suicide attempt, do not attempt to kill themselves again. Just like we were saying on a, from a homicide perspective, people have that moment, that tipping point of anger or frustration or whatever. Depression also gives people that moment where I just can't take it anymore. And just, just stalling that attempt or making it less likely to result in death makes a huge difference because most people don't try again. So logically, what you'd think is that policies that limit access to guns will also decrease suicides. Um, and that's been very much true in Australia. Uh, Australia instituted a gun buyback program in the mid-90s. Um, and they, in the, in the years following that, they saw a 74% drop in gun suicides. Uh, lastly, uh, in states with more guns, more police officers are killed on duty. All of these things are logical. No, there's nothing surprising here. When there are more guns, more people commit gun-related crimes. Guns are an extremely effective way to do a lot of damage to someone. And so whether you're trying to kill yourself, whether you're trying to kill a police officer, whether you're trying to kill somebody else, if, guns, if there are more guns around, it's more likely that you'll be able to do that. So there are the stats. Now I'm sure... You've been able to see this coming for a while. Um, 
But in my opinion, the only approach here that makes sense is to address the actual guns. And now please, I said this up top, but if this is an approach you agree with, please don't stop listening. Please, please hear me now. There are a lot of people in my life who are passionate about gun ownership. I have family members that own assault rifles. I have so much respect and compassion for responsible gun owners, for whom owning a gun, caring for a gun, teaching the responsibility that a firearm provides, hunting, uh, just gun-related activities, just going to a range, going to a show, the community that's built around gun ownership. I have, I've seen firsthand so many of you that do this right. So many of you who bonded with your dad or your mom over something gun related, be it hunting or ownership or maintenance or safety. It was, it was used as a vehicle to teach you lessons about life that are very important and meaningful to you. That's the way you connected with your family in the same way other people might connect over baseball or video games or their religion or pick a thing. I, I have so much respect and compassion for you. This sucks. It sucks that something that is pure for you has been corrupted by people that are not you. That sucks. And restricting your right to do something that is inherently good and doesn't harm anyone is offensive. And I understand why you are offended. But here's where I have landed on that. I am choosing between two things that are offensive and I am choosing the thing that is least offensive. On one hand, restricting the rights of a well-intentioned, responsible, well-behaved gun owner, that is offensive to me. On the other hand, um, watching kids get holes blown into their chests, watching videos of people scattering, seeing images of people crying over people they love at a movie theater, hearing a loud noise and wondering if this is the end. I'm sorry, but that is more offensive. It just is. I genuinely don't believe that we can have one or the other. I don't believe there is a solution where guns continue to proliferate at the way that they are proliferating in the United States and we are able to meaningfully mitigate the terrible outcomes that are tied to that gun proliferation. I don't believe that. And I don't believe that you can make a statistically supported good faith argument. I've looked for it. I've looked for a way because man, wouldn't that be an amazing needle to thread? If we didn't have to fight about this, we could just find some magical solution where everybody gets to keep their guns and people aren't being murdered. Kids aren't getting holes blown in them. Of course I would want that. Anybody would want that. That's the magical solution. It doesn't exist, guys. It doesn't exist. So we are going to have to choose between two things that suck. But one of those things is so obviously, demonstrably, viscerally worse than the other that I don't believe this is a difficult choice. Here's an example. 
if you went to a gun store, you've been saving up for this gun. You're so excited to go use it. Um, maybe it's because it's going to make you feel safe. Maybe it's just because it's cool, just because guns are cool and you just want to have it. And you've been looking at it and you've been watching videos and you want to go shoot it. And maybe you want to hunt with it, or maybe you just want to go take it to the range or whatever. You're excited about it. This is a, a, a hobby and a passion of yours that means a lot to you. So you go to the gun store, you've saved up to buy it. You walk in, the guy behind the counter says, here you go. I'm going to sell this to you. But if I sell it to you, I have to also sell it to that guy over there. And somehow you knew that that guy over there was going to use it to do something that you don't agree with. That guy's going to use it to, I don't know why I'm dancing around this. That guy's going to use it to kill people. He's going to twitch his finger. And after he twitches his finger, a hole in someone's body is going to explode. And they're going to be in terrible pain and terrible fear. And they're going to look down and they're going to watch the life force inside them literally drain out. And in the few seconds they have left, they're going to be terrified and sad and wish they had more time. That's what's going to happen. And you know that. I think in that moment, no matter how passionate you are about guns, if you knew that and you looked that person in the eye, and you knew they were going to do something bad with that. And you knew that some real person in the world, whether you knew them or not, was going to suffer that fate. I don't think you would buy that gun. And that's happening every day. You're just not looking them in the eye. You just can't tell on the outside what they're thinking and feeling on the inside. But if you look at the numbers, this is happening every day. That deal that the, the gun store owner offered you is a deal that is being offered to every well-meaning gun purchaser every single day. And they're taking it. They're saying, okay, I'll take the gun. And he gets one too. Here's another metaphor that may or may not be helpful. Imagine that there was a new scary phenomenon on cable news. And it had a catchy name because they always do. And it was called the school flu. And everybody was terrified of it because when it hit your school, all of a sudden, 15 people would die immediately. You couldn't predict it. And they died in horrible, terrifying, scary ways. And sometimes the school flu would catch hold at a movie theater or it would catch hold at a restaurant. Obviously, you can see it's not a very complicated metaphor. You see where I'm going here. But... If we found out that the reason, the, the one thing that was tying the school flu together was people playing soccer. Somehow, that's the thing. If you play soccer, then there's a high likelihood that school flu is going to come to your school. All of us would say, that sucks. Soccer is so cool. It's been such a huge part of my development as a person and I love it. And it really means a lot to me, but I'm not going to play soccer anymore because I don't want every, anyone around me to get the school flu. Right? Would we choose playing soccer? Of course not. Just because it means something to us, just because it taught us something valuable. 
just because it seems harmless on the surface, just because my family does it right. If other people are going to die, and not just die, but die in terrifying, horrible, violent ways, I'll give that up. And I realize that that doesn't encompass everything that guns are and everything that guns mean to so many people. I'm just trying to talk about that one aspect of what guns mean, which is this is an important part of the fabric of our family and an important vehicle to teach life lessons. And I think in that very specific vein, in that very specific way of talking about what guns mean to people, something like soccer actually is a pretty apt analogy. All right, let's take another quick little breather. Um, I don't really have anything important to say, but just thought taking a quick little break might be nice. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of all I got for you. I didn't really think this through, but, um, anyways, thanks for being part of this conversation with us. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, so when I think about the issue of guns in America, I think there are three things to talk about. Um, there's the number of guns, there's the type of guns, and there's the availability of guns. So as far as the number of guns is concerned, there's more guns than people in America. Uh, and that is just crazy pants. And uh, gun ownership is also highly concentrated, where there are a lot of people in the country who have full-on armories, dozens, hundreds of guns. And the number of guns, uh, I think, is directly related to uh, an inability or unwillingness to track the movement of those guns, which means that a person with good intentions that buys a gun, that sells it to another person, that sells it to another person, it's very easy for a gun that's sold to a responsible gun owner who has every intention of using it the right way for it to end up in the hands of someone without those intentions. Either if those intentions are explicitly malicious, I would like to do harm to people with this gun, or it'll end up in the hands of someone who will do harm with that gun as a result of incompetence or laziness or a lack of attention to detail in the form of an accidental gun death, in the form of a suicide, um, in the form of a, an easy availability of that gun in a moment of anger or frustration. So the number of guns in this country is just bananas. And I think if you, if you look at a chart and you see uh, just how, how much of an outlier we are as a country, it's, it's really difficult to look at that and, and draw any conclusion other than there must be a strong correlation between the number of guns that are available in this country and the amount of gun crime. So there's the number of guns, but there's also the type of guns that are available. And this is when we start talking about things like assault weapons. And that is a loaded term. Um, there are people that don't want them to be called assault weapons. Uh, here's, here's where I stand on that. 
uh, sometimes I see arguments online where a person talks about assault weapons and then someone else is like, that's not even a fair term. And then someone else says, well, these are weapons of war. And then someone says, well, actually, this is the, these are the differences between the weapons that are actually used on the battlefield and an AR-15, for example. And it's not exactly the same. And it obviously just shows how little you know about guns. And I think that argument is so patently silly because ultimately the argument you're making, if you're the person that's on the, the well, actually side is well, actually currently in 2019, the U S military has developed different and better ways, more efficient ways for our soldiers on the battlefield to kill people. Cause that's what guns do. And so the implicit in that argument is essentially uh, actually what is available to the general public is a slightly different and slightly outdated version of that weapon of war. So if you think it's more fair for us to call them weapons of the Gulf War, if it's, if it's the, the best we could do 25 years ago to, to create efficient killing machines for our soldiers on the battlefield, okay, let's call them weapons of the Gulf War. But I hope you can see on the surface how silly that argument is with high capacity magazines, with exploding rounds and with fully automatic weapons, you, you cannot make a legitimate argument for why those things are needed other than number one, it's cool, which I want to talk about that for a second in a minute, but that's one argument. It's cool. It's fun. Or number two, this is a very efficient way to kill people. More efficient than having to pull the trigger multiple times or having to wait more than a tenth of a second between rounds firing. Or having rounds that aren't gonna that aren't designed to pierce bulletproof vests or armor-piercing bullets or any sort of exploding round. That's basically designed to get through something that's trying to stop it, or to do the most damage when it enters flesh. That's what those things are for. So Back to the first argument on this is, this is cool. I actually think that's a, a legitimate argument that I want to make sure we're giving space to because it's okay to like things because they're cool. It's okay to want to have something because it makes you feel cool. Everybody has their version of that, whether it's a new pair of shoes or a new backpack or a hat or a car or a whatever, whatever you're into. A big reason why you want to buy it is because it makes you feel cool. And so therefore it's valid if someone wants to buy an AR-15 because it feels cool when they hold it and they like the way they look in the mirror when they hold it and shooting it is cool and fun. I get that. I relate to that. I've shot weapons and felt cool when I did it. What, what I want to make sure we're keeping in, in focus though is that that's not a, that is a good reason it's just not a good enough reason for the proliferation of those things to keep occurring. Because as I'm going to keep hammering home, if we protect the right of that person to buy something because they think it's cool, we are removing the right of innocent people to be brutally murdered in public. You cannot have one without the other. So again, it comes down to what is more offensive to you. So on that note, the other piece of this that I want to talk about is the availability of guns. Um, we have near universal support for increased background checks. We have near universal support for more of a cooling off period. 
Um, the fact is, be it at a gun store, be it online, or be it at a gun show, it is way, way too easy to acquire a gun in this country. Simply put, it should be harder to acquire something that can kill people easily than it is right now. And I'm not going to propose a perfect policy that checks every box, but it sounds like a really easy place to start is universal background checks, a long cooling off period, and don't sell guns to people that are on the no-fly list. People that our government has already identified are threats to the public. In my opinion, those are pretty simple, pretty common sense things. And I would challenge you in a vacuum to think about those things and then think about the type of people that are fighting against those things and start to ask yourself why. When it has overwhelming majority support, and that includes meaningful support, sometimes including majority support in both parties. But if you're talking about a percentage of the population, overwhelming majority support for all three of those policies. You, background checks is up in the 90s. If that's the case, and if those things are such common sense principles to think about gun availability and what we can do about that problem in America, and if there are people that are fighting against those things, what does it say about them and their motivations? Does it say that they have only the public good in mind? Or does it say that they are extremely worried about what the NRA might say about them? In my opinion, the answer is obvious. It says that the NRA, very specifically, has an inordinate influence on American policy. The NRA has been fighting against successfully any publicly sanctioned survey by the National Institute of Health to address the problem of guns and gun violence and gun killing in America for 25 years. These studies aren't getting done. If anything else in the country was killing people the way that guns are killing people, any disease, any terrorist threat, any anything, we would be, if, car, if, if, if a new type of car was killing people like this, self-driving cars, the amount of study and research and government oversight that's happened on those things which are still theoretical at this point because they might kill people. If anything was killing people the way guns are killing people, you would think the only logical thing would be for the government, whose responsibility is the public health, to be studying those things and to be working on potential solutions. But they're not. What the NRA has done so successfully is they have created a, a fear in the public and among the politicians who they bankroll that any concession on the issue of guns is a slippery slope. Any concession is an attack on the Second Amendment. And if you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. And they spread these lies and this, uh, there's no other word for it other than propaganda. Like, well, you know, the first thing Hitler did before the Holocaust is he went and he took everybody's guns. And they've got us so afraid of a hypothetical world that we are, we've lost the healthy fear of the world that we're living in right now, where real people that we love, real husbands, real wives, real kids, real employees, real employers, real anybody, everybody is affected by this issue. They're getting murdered right now. 
their their arms are getting blown off. Holes are getting blown in children. That is a thing. Whether it's happening accidentally in someone's basement when a neighbor kid accidentally finds a gun or whether it's happening at Sandy Hook or Gilroy or Dayton or Parkland or Virginia Tech or Las Vegas or one of any other hundreds of mass shooting sites that aren't coming to mind right now. And that's sort of the whole point is that it happens so often. We're not afraid enough of what's happening already. They've got us afraid of what might happen if we actually do something about this issue. And it's insidious. It's immoral. It doesn't value human life. I don't care what you believe, whether you're religious or you're not religious or whatever religion you are or whatever. But we all should value human life. And right now we've got a problem in this country where these things wielded by people are taking away human life. And that should offend us like deeply. We should be outraged about this. But, but it seems like the political climate in this country has gotten to the point where we all just kind of throw up our hands. It just feels like, oh, we could never do it. Oh, there wouldn't be the political will. Or even if there was the political will, we, uh, it's not feasible. What would we even do at this point? And it's, that's just, there's such a lack of imagination and sh- such a lack of compassion and empathy for the victims of these things that it, I mean, you can hear it in my voice. It makes me crazy. People are dying. It shouldn't be that this complicated. Kids are dying. You're listening to the Hey Dad podcast because you have kids or because you love kids or because you love parents or because you want to understand a parent. Somehow it's related to kids. And I don't want to see any more kids die, you guys. I don't want to open up CNN and read articles with tears streaming down my face anymore. And the only way we're going to do anything about it is if we can have a simple first principles level conversation about this. So let's just think, okay, okay. So people are dying. That sucks. We have to fix that. Well, what's happening here? Well, there, this is directly correlated. There's a lot of guns, the wrong type of guns in the wrong type of hands. And there's too many of them. Well, that means we need to do something. Well, what should we do? Like, we just need to have a conversation like that rather than this conversation where, you know, especially folks that are, that are staunch defenders of the second amendment value that, that, that principle that policy over real people, it can't, it can't happen anymore. And I think that I have such empathy and respect for, for, like I've mentioned earlier, for people that are passionate about guns. But to be honest, I feel like you've been lied to a little bit. I feel like you have people whispering things in your ears that are making you forget fundamental human things that are more important than your ability or your right to own that particular weapon. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. It is important It does suck that your rights might be restricted. I hate that too. I love the freedom and liberty that we have in America. I would like us to have as many rights and individual freedoms as is possible. I think that's a very good thing for the way you build a country. I'm with you. It's just that in this one particular instance, the trade-off is not worth it. All right, this is it. Last little bit of the conversation. Thanks for hanging in here with us. Hope this has been meaningful for you so far and uh, looking forward to hearing and continuing the conversation and other ways through our socials or email or whatever if uh, there's anything you want to reach out about. Um, otherwise, let's, uh, let's finish strong with this last little bit.
So now I want to talk a little bit about um, the arguments that I hear on on the the other side um, of like why we should protect gun ownership. And again, um, I'm going to try to do my best to present these arguments um, honestly and not just try to win an argument and be cool. Not going to do the straw man thing. I'm going to do my best to do the steel man thing. Um, so here's an argument. Basically, this just goes back to what I was saying earlier, but actually the solution here is more guns. More good people with guns. That will dissuade bad people from doing bad things. If I walk into a bank and I see someone in a state with open carry holding an assault weapon over their back or even just holding a pistol on their pocket or, or sorry, on their hip or whatever, um, that's going to dissuade bad people from, from uh, doing crimes. Um, I actually can understand the theoretical argument there, right? Like, I can imagine a world where that makes sense. Why would I do something bad? I might die. Look, there's a gun right there. I'm not going to do that. Or if I'm starting to do something bad, there's someone who can stop me and, and, and limit the severity of the bad thing that I was about to do. But that theoretical argument that more guns equals less crime falls apart in the face of the very real, proven, statistical fact that less guns equals less gun crime. Of course it does. So do we want to lessen the gun problem? It's been proven all over the world, everywhere you look other than America and a couple failed states like Yemen, that if you have less guns, you have less gun crime. And it's also just so patently obvious on the surface that it feels like any argument to the contrary is not a good faith argument. And that this study that, that proved that America does not have more crime, it has more lethal crime, makes all the sense in the world because Americans aren't more criminal. They just have access to things that can do more damage, which to me just makes this point. Killing should be really hard. It should be a policy of every government and a tenet of every morality system that we should make killing hard because killing is a terrible, literally dehumanizing thing. It strips who we are out of us. It's not good. And it reminds me of an anecdote that I was listening to um, on a podcast that was describing the development of nuclear weapons uh, in the United States. And as we were developing nuclear weapons and we were starting to grasp the, the level of devastation that could be wrought by these nuclear weapons on a scale that human beings were not ready for so far beyond anything that we'd ever developed. Um, not in parallel to all the scientific and, and manufacturing work that was done actually developing these weapons. There were also philosophers um, and, and uh, ethicists sort of in parallel working on the moral and philosophical and ethical implications of what this meant. And uh, this was never implemented but this was something that was, that was suggested that I thought was really powerful. Um, and it's basically this. Uh, right now, um, in the United States, the person that has nuclear authority is the president. And uh, they're basically followed around every day by someone that has a briefcase called the nuclear football. And it's, uh, it's basically a way, it includes the codes. We, 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 we want to make sure that launching a nuke is more difficult than the president just saying, go. You know, so there's a, there's a process and a system in place, again, because of 
how devastating a nuclear weapon is. But a suggestion that a philosopher had at the time was that uh, in order to actually launch a nuclear weapon, uh, other than a nuclear test, the president of the United States would be required to physically stab the person holding the nuclear codes in the heart to death. And the point being, we need to make the reality of killing very present for the person that's about to make that decision on a mass scale. And as far as I know, this is not currently the policy, unless that's a very well-kept secret. But I think the point is so powerful. And it's that killing should be hard. And we shouldn't remove people from the reality of, of, of how devastating killing someone is. And when you just have to twitch your trigger finger and you don't have to put your hands around someone's neck and, and feel the life drain from them, or you don't have to even be close enough to stab them or hit them or do something physical like that. I'm not saying any of those things are good. I'm just saying those things force you to grapple with what you're doing in a way that like in the Las Vegas shooting, sitting however many floors up in a hotel room, indiscriminately firing into a crowd, he doesn't have to wrestle as much with the consequences of what he's doing because he's not even looking at them. We, we've wrestled with this in the age of social media that people get meaner when they don't have to look people in the eye. Of course, when you remove people from the direct consequences of their actions, when they're not forced to confront the negative outcomes that they might be creating, of course, they might be more willing to engage in those actions. And the parallel to guns is obvious. When they are available, when killing is too easy, things get escalated because people don't have to grapple as much with the consequences of what they're doing. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, another reason why people feel very strongly about the need to protect uh, the rights of gun owners in America. And that is the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Here's the Second Amendment of the Constitution. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that's, that's the text of the Second Amendment. Um, I, I very much understand uh, why that's sacred, because it's the Constitution. It's our founding document. And uh, America has been able to forge, uh, in spite of very long odds, especially at the time, um, a position as the global superpower that's created a lot of prosperity and uh, done a pretty good job. Obviously, there are some extremely big holes in that argument, namely slavery and the way that we have treated specifically black people and more generally people of color. I'm going to put that aside for a second. That's a whole other podcast for another day. Um, I'm, so I'm definitely not saying America's perfect, but I understand people saying the reason we are who we are, the reason that we've gotten where we've gotten today is because of this constitution and it's very sacred. And I, I buy that. I think uh, the framers of the constitution were very smart in the way that they set things up, especially at the time. So let's talk about the context. Let's talk about... Um, that phrase being necessary to the security of a free state. So let's, let's, let's talk context here. Um, they are writing this document 
uh, in the 1780s. And they are coming directly out of uh, a, a war where the reason that they were able to create this nation in the first place is because they had a well-regulated militia. That's like existential to them. And they've just proven how important it is. So they had a, uh, they're up against a foe, uh, England, that has more money than them, that has uh, literally more bodies than them from a, a, an army perspective, and that has better, better weapons than they do. And still, because they had adequate weapons and because they had a, a better reason to fight, and because they were fighting on their own soil, like history is littered with, with invading armies that weren't able to win on soil that wasn't their own. It's really hard to win a war that's not on your own soil. Because of those reasons, because we had some great generals, because we had help from France, a whole bunch of other reasons, we were able, America was able to create itself on the heels, on the back of a well-regulated militia. So it makes so much sense to me why they put it in there. However, if you think that in 2019, we are access to the type of weapons that are available to the public is an effective way to keep the government in check, you are deluded. And I want to come right at this one because I think it is... Um, an understandable place to start, which is, this is how we were founded by keeping a government in check. And if the government ever overreaches or loses sight of who we are and it comes to it, I want to be ready to defend the principles that I believe very strongly in. I, I get that. I buy that. However, the reality of how things have changed in the last 250 years completely belies that argument. The government has literal nuclear weapons. The government has predator drones that can identify you from space on an individual level and drop a missile on you. The government has tanks. The government has fighter jets. The government has aircraft carriers. The government has access to weapons on a scale that, and this is just all the weapons we know that are publicly available. The government, especially post-World War II, we went from a state of total war in World War II, where the purpose of the American economy and everybody in it was making sure that we won World War II. That's the definition of total war. The, the uh, whole purpose of the state is to win the war. We went straight from that into the Korean War and then into the Cold War, where the way that we would secure our existence as a country is making sure that the scale and pace at which we developed weapons exceeded the Soviet Union. So it wasn't quite total war, but if you look at the scale of investment that we made in the military industrial complex in the last 70 years, this is how you get to a world where our military is so insanely powerful and so much more insanely powerful than anyone else on earth. Because it was the perfect blend of a very real existential threat to our, uh, to our nation and a burgeoning military industrial complex that was all too happy to take gigantic government contracts and turn that into 
weapons of war and security and defense on a scale that humanity had not yet imagined. That's the backdrop of the last 70 years. So whatever, whatever parity or, or shred of parity that might have existed between a well-regulated militia and the armed forces of the U.S. government, the gap that existed between American farmers in 1776 and the British army was that there was a gap there, but it was overcomable with good generals, with better knowledge of the train, with a, a good reason to fight, with good training, with all those things. The gap was there, but it was overcomable. The gap now is exponentially bigger. And in addition to all of the actual weapons of war that I've just described, I haven't talked about the NSA or the CIA or a hundred other, I don't know about a hundred or, but numerous other government agencies that are devoted to knowing what is going on. And guys, post 9-11, the Patriot Act, we gave the government the authority to look at just about everything. So they know where you are and they know what you're doing and they can listen on to what you're saying and they have weapons that you don't have. I'm sorry, like I'm not, this isn't good news. It's just reality. So if a big part of the reason why you want to protect the rights of Americans to own weapons is to hold the government in check, I'm sorry, it's not happening. And it doesn't matter if you have a bunker with 500 guns in it and your own little armory and your own plan for how you're going to hold out against the government. When the government can blow up your armory from space, it doesn't matter. We would be tiny little kids fighting against the rock. And secondly, even, even if there's an infinitesimally small chance that that is actually true and, and in, the, in, a, in a world where the government overreaches and the only thing that can protect the citizens of America is an armed uprising by the patriots that were strong enough to hold on to defense of the Second Amendment and stockpile weapons and be trained, even in that, let's call that a shred of a percent of a chance. There is a 100% chance today that Americans are going to get their brains exploded by guns. That is going to happen. A hundred percent chance. So rather than being afraid of this small, tiny hypothetical, can we choose to be afraid, appropriately afraid and appropriately enraged at the things that are happening right now to our brothers and sisters? So staying on the Second Amendment, I want to talk about the second part of that phrase. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So shall not be infringed is a phrase that um, the NRA and people that are passionate about guns uses to fight back against pretty much any policy, right? That is like going to limit ownership of either magazines or bullets or actual guns or any, anything, background check, anything related to anything. It's like, no, you can't infringe on this. And, and, and they hold on to that word. But to me, um, that's creating this like absolute argument that, that you, that's, it's already been lost. Of course, your right to bear arms has already been infringed. You're not allowed to own a nuke. Those are arms. You're not allowed to own a missile. Those are arms. You're not allowed to own a fighter jet. Those are arms. You're not allowed to stockpile a bunch of grenades. Those are arms. So all we're doing 
is just fighting over whether where the line should be drawn, not whether it should be drawn at all. And when the argument is framed in terms of shall not be infringed means shall not be infringed, my response to that is it's already been infringed a thousand times. That's not what we're talking about. Because if, if actually the world you want is anybody can own anything and you're going full super mega libertarian there, then you're actually saying like, oh, it's cool if my neighbor has a tank, no bigs. It's cool if my, my neighbor wants to open a gun range in their backyard. It's cool if it's like, of course, of course, we're already drawing lines, guys. We're using our brains and we're drawing lines on the things that we can and can't do. The third thing I'll mention on the second amendment, holding the government in check thing is just that we also need to be aware of how much the theater of war has changed and how rapidly it's changed. The, the effects of the internet and what it's done as far as um, both distributing authority and creating massive privacy and surveillance state issues um, almost cannot be overstated. The, the way to hold the government in check today has changed so profoundly from the way that the government was held in check 250 years ago. And I do think we should fight very, very hard for the ability of the American people to hold their government in check when appropriate. What I'm arguing against is that the most effective way to do that is for more guns to be available to more people. Lastly, and this is more of an overarching uh, reason why people uh, cite the Second Amendment, and it's very understandable, it's that the Constitution is sacred. It's that so much of what we've been able to build is because the framers had some really good ideas, and we're going to hold on to them. And I buy that. I, again, I totally agree. Um, but the Constitution is not perfect, and it never claimed to be. The Bill of Rights were 10 amendments. They were adopted almost immediately, partly to send a message that this is a living document. Because the framers were smart enough to realize we don't know everything. And it seems like the wisest people, the older they get, the more they realize they don't know. And when I see the process they went through where they said, this is the Constitution, and then almost immediately they said, and these are the 10 amendments, the message that hey, everyone, this is a living document and we're going to set up procedures so that when you need to adopt amendments to this, you can. To me says, we realize that there are outcomes in the future that we cannot plan for because we don't know about them and we want to empower you, future Americans, to make changes as needed. So that's the second amendment. Um, here's another sort of overarching reason that I hear a lot um, for why we shouldn't directly address the issue of guns. And... Sometimes it'll come up in the form of a non-gun related mass crime. You know, it's a, you know, a, a car that's being driven into a crowd or it's a crime that's being committed with a knife or something. Um, and it'll get thrown out, you know, like, see, bad people will always do bad things and getting rid of guns won't solve that. And so the argument basically comes down to it's not gun going to fix everything. Or even when people are, 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 um, passionate, passionately fighting against assault weapons. And then sometimes there'll even be a mass shooting and it'll be with a handgun or a rifle or a shotgun or whatever. And then gun rights advocates will even point to that and say like, see, it's actually about bad people doing bad things. It's not actually about the weapon. And if I'm being honest, that, that out of all the things, this might be the argument that, that infuriates me the most. It is just some fatalistic bad faith arguing. First of all, there's a reason that those crimes make the news and that's because they're super rare. 
Gun murders happen every single day and they don't make the news because they happen all the time. And the idea, basically the argument you're making here is it's not going to fix everything. So why do anything? And what you're, what you're saying without realizing that you're saying it is it might stop a few people from getting terrible, violent deaths. It might stop a few kids from getting holes blown in them. It might stop a few wives from getting murdered by their husbands and during a domestic dispute. It might stop a few suicides from happening when someone reaches the point of no return and in a moment of terrible, devastating loneliness and depression decides that ending their life would be better than living another day. It might save a few of those people, but it won't save everyone. So why even bother? And that is a, a terribly inhuman argument to make. It's an argument you make when you have already conceded that we cannot or should not do anything about guns. It's an argument you make when you've decided that the right to own a weapon is more important than actual real human lives. And I don't think people realize that they have made those concessions in their own hearts when they make that argument. I mentioned domestic violence. I mentioned suicide. I cannot say this enough. The, this, the mass shootings get the attention. If I'm being honest, they're the ones that scare me the most. They're the ones I think about when I drop my kids off at school. But the, the, the reason that most people die from guns is because they point it at their own head. And then right below that, it's because they pointed at one other person. And that so often, too often happens in the context of domestic violence. The, the mass shootings make the news, but this problem is everywhere. It's in every neighborhood. In every neighborhood right now, somebody is struggling to some degree, whether it be the deepest, darkest, crippling aspect of mental health, or the beginnings of anxiety and worry and frustration and the beginnings of a, a path that could lead there. Mental health is everywhere, guys. It's a whole other terrifying trend that I don't understand, that freaks me out, that's a topic for another day. But if the only reason that we wanted to regulate access to weapons was so that those people, when they reached their most desperate, couldn't end their lives that easy, but lived another day, another day when maybe they could get counseling, another day when maybe they could get medicine that would help them, just another day, one more day for that person. If we make it harder for that person to kill themselves in that moment, this is worth doing, guys. Those are real people. Quick aside, and then I'm going to get to some actual practical thoughts that I have. Um, there's been a little bit in the news lately. I'm not going to spend very much time on it because I think it's absolutely silly. But if you're blaming video games for this problem, come on. The entire world plays video games. Only one country in the world has this mass shooting problem. It's just us. It's not about video games. Just because you don't understand those video games, just because those video games are violent. And hey, maybe that is a problem. I'm not, I'm not advocating for why Grand Theft Auto is good for society, okay? I'm just saying it's an inadequate explanation of this problem and a very convenient non-gun related bad guy to blame it on. Okay, now I want to talk about some um, principles that I have in 
in thinking about actual solutions that we could move toward. Um, and admittedly, this is the part of uh, the discussion here that is a little bit fuzzier uh, on purpose. Um, I don't want to just say vote for this policy and it'll fix everything. I'm, I'm trying in my own head to organize my thoughts around principles that should guide our process going forward. Um, so here's my number one principle. We should have a bias toward action. I've said this multiple times, but the worst place to be is the place we're in right now where we're all afraid, where it's way too easy for someone who wants to do a lot of harm to a lot of people to do it. And while in all of our homes, the threat of gun death via suicide or domestic violence is too prevalent. This is the end state we cannot settle in. So the bias should be toward action. If it's, uh, we don't know, 50-50, try it. Try it, measure it, see if it works. If it doesn't work, try something else. Number two, um, the, the, one of the big counter arguments, which again, I, I reject out of hand because it makes a concession that I don't think any American should be willing to make is that like, ah, it's, it's, it's already gone too far. There's no way we're going to be able to get any of the guns back. Like, and it's sort of implicit in that is like people will start some weird guerrilla war against the government if the government wants their guns. And sometimes it's not implicit. It's, that's a very explicit threat. Um, which to me, again, like back up from that situation, <laughs> like how could that, how could that be okay with anyone? Like, well, as, as a people, we've decided that this would be good for all of us, but then some of the people are going to say no, and then shoot a bunch of people because they don't agree with that policy. That's anti-democratic. That's literally anti-American because in this scenario, our elected government has decided that this is the way we should go. This is what would be best for the people. And then there's some sort of armed uprising slash everybody gets holed up in their little armory bunkers and says, you know, from my cold dead fingers. So I think an important process to keep in mind um, is de-escalation. And so we de-escalation is a, a principle that applies in everything from like business negotiations to hostage negotiation to like literally ending the Cold War and a whole bunch of things in between. And it's basically that we can think rationally and put together a staged phase solution to get to an end state that is acceptable to everybody, that is best for everybody without doing it all at once. So to be clear, I'm not advocating for tomorrow, we pass a law that says no more guns and then the government shows up at everybody's house and kicks the door and it says, give me your guns. Yeah, that won't work. I get that. But I do think that there's a whole lot of middle ground between that scenario and the from my cold dead fingers, you're never going to come get my gun scenario. There's a de-escalation uh, process. There are, there's buybacks where the government at retail or higher than retail prices will say, hey, we'll buy those back from you. There's things that can be grandfathered in. There's grace periods. There's a phased five, 10 year plan where we allow tensions to cool and people to get comfortable with these ideas. And we also allow for some time to like poke some holes in whatever, whatever the, the new policy is. Like all those things are good. But we, if, we, if we can partner a bias toward action with a long view of where we wanna end and the principle of de-escalation guiding where we go, I think we can actually move a lot further than the fatalists or the 
staunchest, you know, I've got 150 guns in my armory folks might think. So those are the two big principles. And now I want to, I want to maybe get a little bit more specific. So here are the things that I think are really important. Number one, I don't care what you call them, whether you want to call them assault weapons or whatever, whatever the right term is. Um, those should not be legal in America. Full stop. I cannot, for the life of me, come up with a reason why it is worth it for the public safety and the public good of Americans that anybody who wants one of those can have one. Not only does it affect the mass shooting element of this, not only does it affect inner city murders, do you know how many cops are dying because we've armed bad guys so completely and so devastatingly? Do you know how much more cops have to, have to escalate their own both defen defensive and offensive equipment to accommodate for criminals that are this well-armed? It just raises the stakes. It's like a little mini cold war that happens on our streets between law enforcement and criminals. And we need to lower those stakes. And again, the I don't have enough imagination to figure out how we would do that, that seems unrealistic to me, is not a good enough answer. We have a bias toward action, we have the principle of de-escalation guiding it, and we get assault weapons off out of our streets. Number two, I think we need to make guns a lot harder to buy. And I mean that. I don't mean a little harder to buy. I mean a lot harder to buy. I think it is perfectly appropriate to say it should be hard to buy a gun with pretty thorough background checks, with long cooling off periods, with mandatory and regular training and registration. Like the fact that I have to get my driver's license renewed, but no one, <laughs> I have to go take a driver's written and and in-person test, but like you don't have to do that to operate a gun is crazy pants. Thirdly, I think there should be limits on total guns that can be owned by an individual. Fourthly, I think these laws need to be federal. And I know for a lot of folks, especially on the right, who have very valid, very good reasons why they think the best government is the government closest to the people and that are uh, very good, helpful, regular reminders that we are a republic made up of states and counties and cities that make laws that have very um, sometimes legitimate fears about government overreach. I, I hear all of that. But when all the f 48 of the states border each other, um, it, it, sorry, these have to be federal laws. Chicago and Indiana is the best example of this, where they've done studies on the amount, the percentage of guns in Chicago that are purchased 30 minutes away in Indiana. Illinois has very strict gun laws. Chicago, even stricter. Indiana has very open gun laws. And guess what? They're 30 minutes away from each other. So it's really easy. And there's not like border control at state, at, when you're crossing state lines, it's really easy to drive 45 minutes, buy a gun, drive back. It's too easy. So as much as I also would like a lot of the laws in this country to be 
local because I, I think that's a good idea for on, a, on a lot of issues. Guns is not one of them. So those are the, the bigger principles that I think need to guide us toward the right solution here. But the only way that our elected officials will ever have the courage or political will to create the laws that are necessary to keep my kids safe at school and to keep you safe is if we choose empathy before it is forced upon us. And here's what I mean by that. If you look at the overwhelming majority of people who have been directly affected by a mass shooting or directly affected by gun death, those folks have very strong opinions about the role that guns should play in our society. Those folks have very strongly held opinions about gun control. Those folks are pushing for less guns. And the reason is obvious. Because the devastation that, that a bullet can wreak is, is so tangible and visceral to them. Because they have people in their life that they don't get to say goodnight to anymore. Because someone pulled a trigger. So what I'm challenging all of us to do is to choose that empathy before it's forced upon you. Don't wait until it's your kid or your nephew or someone you know and love. Don't wait because I can tell you right now it's someone's kid. It's someone's nephew. It's someone's wife. It's someone's grandpa. It's a human being that's just as valuable as you or I today that's going to die from a gun. So can we be emotionally intelligent and intellectually strategic enough to choose that empathy before it's forced upon us? And to say, even though it's never happened to me, it's happened to someone and that's not okay with me. And I'm going to be loud about it. And I'm going to talk to my elected officials about it. And I'm going to vote my conscience about this. And I'm going to do all the things that, that make representative democracy in America great where you can make your voice heard. I'm going to do those things, but I'm not going to just do it if and when it happens to me. I'm going to do it now because I know it's happening to someone. That is, that is what I am trying to embrace. That's why I spent all this time thinking about this and talking about this. And that's my, my challenge to the rest of you. I just want to close on this. If you disagree with me, I still love you. I hope you still love me. And honestly, a huge part of the reason I'm so passionate about this is because I want you to be safe. And I don't want you to have to be afraid. I don't want your kids to have to be afraid either. Yeah, I am worried about me. And yeah, I am worried about my kids. But I'm worried about your kids too. And I genuinely believe deep in my heart that a world where we have less guns on our streets, in our garages, in our gun safes, just, just less guns is a world where we're safer. And I'm not cynical or fatalistic enough to believe that there's nothing we can do about it. All right, that's it. Love you. Bye.